This is the Art of Dental Finance and Management podcast brought to you by Art Wiederman, CPA with Ide Bailey. Whether it's taxes and investing or planning wisely, Art is the expert to make your dental practice profitable. At Ide Bailey, what inspires you inspires us. We provide a suite of accounting and advisory services dedicated to the total care of your practice. Visit our website to access our tools and resources tailored for dentists, idebailey.com slash dentist. That's E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y dot com slash dentist. This podcast is distributed with the understanding that Art Wiederman, CPA, and Ide Bailey, LLP are not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Listeners should consult with their business advisors before acting on any of the information or opinions shared. If you have questions and or feedback, make sure to email Art over at awiederman at idebailey.com. That's A-W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y dot com. You can also give Art a call at 657-279-3243. Without further delay, here's your host, Dental CPA, Art Wiederman. And hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Dental Finance and Management with Art Wiederman, CPA. I'm your host, Art Wiederman. Welcome to my podcast. We're approaching, I think we're either at or over 150 episodes of the podcast, and I'm very proud of the work we do here. And today might be, and I know I've said this before, but it might be the most important episode of this series that I've done. And if you haven't heard of Dr. Roy Shelburne, um, you will today. And I will tell you his story when I go to introduce him. But um, we're going to be talking about his story, which involves uh, documentation in his dental practice in Virginia uh, back in the early 2000s and how he actually, uh, the feds uh, came and uh, uh, called his number and he actually spent 19 months in a federal prison camp in Kentucky. And the story is fascinating. And the story is part of it, but what he does now to help dentists nationwide is even more important to make sure that you understand proper documentation uh, and insurance coding. So we'll get to Dr. Shelburne in a minute. Uh, I want to, again, encourage you to go on to the website of our partners, Decisions in Dentistry Magazine, www.decisionsindentistry.com. Incredible clinical content on every possible dental clinical subject you can think of. They were there during the pandemic. And uh, we're recording this in early March of 2022. So if you can believe it, uh, dental offices, when I'm recording today, next week will have been two years that they have shut down. So it's just remarkable. And the dental profession, as it was in 2008, has been so resilient and so amazing and has come back and, and just done some great things. And we're very proud of all of you out there. So uh, Decisions in Dentistry Magazine, uh, go to their website, www.decisionsindentistry.com. I am a dental division director at the CPA firm of Ide Bailey. Uh, that's E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y. And I'm a proud member of the Academy of Dental CPAs. Uh, 24 CPA firms across the United States that represent uh, over 10,000 dentists. We have been the financial first responders um, through this pandemic. And uh, I've been talking to you about PPP and ERTC and uh, the HHS Provider Relief Fund and uh, EIDL and any other letters I feel like making up that day. So 
Um, you know, if you're not working with a dental CPA, you should be. Uh, and uh, again, my phone number is 657-279-3243. And my email is aweederman, W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at idbailey.com. Last thing I want to touch on, because I do want to get to Dr. Shelburne, is if you had a greater than 50% reduction in your gross receipts uh, in the second quarter of 2020, you are probably eligible for the employee retention tax credit. We have helped doctors for over over 100 practices get over $4 million of tax credits. It is legal. It is legit. And it's money the government's offering, and we're going to go get some of it for you. Uh, if you had a greater than 20% reduction in any of the first three quarters of 2021 versus 2020, or a reduction of 20% in the fourth quarter of 2020 versus fourth quarter of 2019, 20%, uh, you're eligible for a much more um, wonderful, larger, uh, vibrant, I don't know what other adjectives I can use, uh, credit. So give us a call and let us know. Be sure to check out our new I'd Bailey podcast, Ebb and Flow, a business podcast providing inspired insight on issues and trends the middle market faces. Hear unique business stories, get answers to frequently asked and unasked questions, and understand business topics that matter to you. Available now on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, uh, I want to get to Dr. Shelburne. Dr. Roy Shelburne is a speaker, consultant, writer, and coach. He's a 1981 honor graduate from Virginia Commonwealth University School of Dentistry. After Dr. Shelburne graduated, he opened his practice in his grandfather's old hardware store. He'd served as president of the Southwest Virginia Dental Society and volunteered at Virginia's various MOM projects across the state. He has also served as a short-term missionary to Honduras with Baptist Medical Missions International. So, you're talking about a highly ethical, highly professional, a man who went to dental school like all of you to help people. So some dentists may fear, I'm, I'm reading this right off of his website, some dentists may fear litigation, but few worry about going to prison. So here you go, and I'm going to let him tell the whole story. But on October 24th, 2003, the FBI broke down the back door of Dr. Shelburne's office and confiscated all of his business and dental records. Over the course of the next three years, every aspect of his life was subjected to the closest scrutiny. He was indicted in 2006 in October, um, and in March of 2008, he was found guilty of healthcare fraud, racketeering, and money laundering, and he spent 19 months in, uh, incarcerated at the federal prison camp in Manchester, Kentucky, before he was released in 2010. And during the investigation and trial, it became apparent that his records, billing, and coding systems were faulty and that ignorance is no excuse. While incarcerated, Dr. Shelburne had ample time to reflect on his life and found that true release comes when we draw from our strengths, characters, vision, wisdom, and experience. Now, he's now a speaker and a consultant, one of the most sought-after speakers in the United States. And we are going to let Dr. Shelburne tell a story today, as well as talk to you about what you should be doing in your dental office. Dr. Roy Shelburne, welcome to the Art of Dental Finance and Management. All right. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate being invited to, to share. I'm passionate about being the last dental professional who goes to prison for things they didn't know or understand. So I'm not particularly proud of what I went through, but I certainly feel that what I learned is necessary to be able to share. And thank you for inviting me to be able to do that today. Appreciate well, it. Well, I, I, I give kudos to you for having the courage to tell your story on 
I mean, hundreds of lectures that you've done, podcasts, webinars, um, and, and you know, we are human beings. Things happen. Uh, you did not intentionally uh, <laughs> racketeer and do all these things. And again, we're, we're going to get into this deeply. But before we do, I understand that you are a horseman and that you are a champion horseman, as a matter of fact. Share a little bit about that. Uh, I grew up on a farm. Um, actually, um, started by uh, just riding ponies and horses and became involved in the quarter horse world. Uh, I uh, became a, a world champion competitor, was actually placed at the world championship show, top 10 in the nation for about 11 years. It was wow. great therapy for me. It was uh, one of those things in the dental practice, you're very confined in your view and you're focused on a very small area. Getting on a horse and just letting it all go was something that I really enjoyed. And actually uh, selling my horse after I was married actually furnished our apartment when I went to dental school. So um, it not only is a hobby and avocation, but also helped me to finance uh, my dental education as well as my first my first apartment. Well, that, you know, everybody's got to do it in a different way. Um, exciting for you. So, um, all right. I'll tell you what. I just want you to uh, tell your story. Tell, tell us what happened. Uh, happy to. As you shared in the CV, I lived in the western part of Virginia. It was uh, 2003. I'd flown from Jonesville, Virginia to San Francisco, California to the American Dental Association meeting. And I was listening to Rudolph Giuliani, who was the keynote speaker that year. And I was in the audience. So enthralled by what he was saying that when my phone began to vibrate, I didn't notice it, but the person next to me did. They elbowed me and said, Doc, Doc I think your phone is vibrating. And I pulled my phone out. In fact, it was, and it identified my wife as the caller. She was at home visiting my, my middle daughter at Virginia Tech at the time. So she wasn't home and knew I was at this meeting and could do the, the time differential and probably knew I was, I, I was involved. So I thought she did it unintentionally. I thought she may have butt dialed me. So rather than answering it and disturbing that, that meeting, I closed my phone and Giuliani finished. The session was over. And as everybody started to move out of that large auditorium, I, I called my wife. Um, phone connected and there was silence on the other end. Now, if, if, if you know my wife, she's usually at least two or three words into the sentence by the time the phone connects. She starts early and ends late. <laughs> Great communicator. It was, it was silent. So I said, Debbie, are you there? And she said, Roy, I am. Are you sitting down? Ever had a phone like that, Art, where you knew what was coming next was not going to be good? Yeah. I, I asked her, I said, Debbie, do I need to be sitting down? She said, Roy, you absolutely need to. And you know, in your mind, it starts to churn 90 miles an hour trying to figure out what I'm going to hear. And what she shared was something I certainly would have never thought of in, in a million years. I said, Debbie, what's, what's, what's up? She said, Roy, James called. James was our custodian at home, took care of the building. James called me to let me know that the FBI has come to your office. They've battered down your back door and taking all your records. Knocked all the wind out of me. I took my deep breath and I, I tried to reassure her that things were going to be okay. It must have been some kind of mistake, never never really believing it, it would be. So talked with her for a while, hung up the telephone. Now this auditorium that I was sitting in was almost empty at this point. And I was thinking, what am I going to do? The office, it was Friday, the office was closed, no team would be there. And I thought, well, how about if I call my office just out of you know curiosity? Would, they, would there be an answer? And I, I called and after four rings, the phone was answered. 
Voice on the other end said, hello. I said, hello, who is this? Voice asked, who's this? I said, I'm Dr. Shelburne. I own the office you're in and the phone you're talking on. Why do you, can you tell me what's going on? He introduced himself as an FBI agent and that I was a target of a healthcare fraud investigation. He had executed a search warrant and they were gathering evidence to determine what their future actions would be. And I, I asked him, I said, do I need to be there? He said, no. I said, do I need an attorney? He said, I can't advise you. And I asked him, I said, what is this about? And his response was, doctor, you know what this is about. I said, sir, I have no idea. Hung up the phone, went back to my hotel. It was probably 9.30ish in the morning. Um, luckily, there was a seat open on a flight home. Flew home to Virginia, got there about 9 p.m., drove past my office. It was surrounded by crime scene tape with multiple black FBI vehicles, and I watched them carry boxes out of my office into those vehicles. Called my team. I, I asked if anybody knew what was going on. They didn't. Went to church the next day, asked for their support. Went to the office on Monday, never expecting any of our patients to come because the search and seizure happened the weekend our fall festival occurred. So there were parades through town. There were booths set up on the side of the streets. And guess what the topic of conversation was? Me. Our practice was in the largest town in the county. That was 1800-1800. Population of the county is about 20,000. Very, very rural. Um, everybody knows everybody else. But... I was surprised a lot of the times as, as we went through the process that um, the relationship I developed with my patient superseded anything that was happening on the inside, any allegations otherwise. So we remained very busy all during that period. Um, investigated for a course of three years. During the investigation, probably two years in, three teams of officers went to my three children's universities. They went to the bursar's office. They uh, got the schedule of my children, went to campus police so the police could direct them to my children's classrooms. They knocked at the door, came into the classroom, flashed, uh, flashed their FBI insignia, pulled my children out of their classroom amongst their, their classmates, took them to a separate empty classroom and interrogated them anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Wow. So. No stone, stone was left unturned through the process. They, they knew more about me than I did. They subpoenaed records from my bank, from the companies I did business with. Henry Schein had to give them my invoices. There was, there was no component of my life that had not been investigated. Three years and four days after the search and seizure, the officer that I talked to on the telephone came to my back door, knocked on the door, Came to the door, he indicated, he said, Dr. Shelburne, I'm here to arrest you. He came with seven other FBI vehicle or seven other officers, four vehicles altogether, three flatbed car haulers, was escorted to my kitchen, was handcuffed with a chain around my waist attached to the handcuff so I couldn't raise or lower my hands any more than three or four inches, had leg irons on. Um, I, the phone began to ring. He was reading me my rights. My wife was on my left shoulder with her right hand on my shoulder. Phone began to ring, and she turned to answer it, and the officer said, Ms. Shelburne, I can't let you answer the telephone. We can't let anything interrupt these proceedings. So she turned back around. Answering machine picked up after six rings, and my daughter, you could hear the recording. She was obviously very distraught. She was crying, but she said, Mom, Dad, they're here. They're taking my car. I don't need my car. What's going on at home? 
because I was charged with racketeering and money laundering, it allowed the government to confiscate everything I owned at that point and anything I helped help to pay for. So the flat which included your children's cars and assets or whatever. So can can I can I just for a second? I just want to understand. So for three years, you continued to practice dentistry, right? I I did. And I'm assuming at points they asked you for information. Did they talk to you? Did you, when did you find out what, when, and maybe I'm getting ahead of the story, but um, when did you find out what, what was the cause of all this? Well, to be honest with you, there, there's a, a whistleblower statute. A person can make a complaint to the fraud division, which someone did, but that person or person's are protected so you're it's never to disclose who they are so as far as as the course of the action complaint to the fbi then they did an evaluation of our submissions to the insurance care or to it was a medicaid issue to medicaid and we were the poorest or next to poorest county in the state of virginia so if you were 18 or under, there was a 95% chance that you were covered with Medicaid, 95% of the people that live there. And those were my neighbors, children. Those were my friends. My kids went to school with them. Um, so we felt it was something that we needed to, to provide care for the, the indigent. So we had a very significant Medicaid practice. And actually, they did an evaluation of those submissions for six years. And over the six year years, six years that, that they evaluated, we were paid three and a half million dollars during that period, which is a large amount of money. That's about five hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, half yes. a million dollars. Um, it was a jury trial. The juries never made known the amount. They only determined guilt or innocence. And of the three and a half million dollars that we got over the six-year period, Art, do you know the the amount that I got that I wasn't entitled to? We we did make errors, and we got I, money that we weren't I, entitled to. I, I did. I did. I always research before I have a, a wonderful guest like yourself on. I, I do know the number, but why don't you go ahead and share what? So, out of three and a half million, how much were they? What was was in question? Seventeen thousand eight hundred ninety nine dollars and fifty seven cents. That's less than one tenth of a percent. And I thought that was pretty decent error percentage. Um, <laughs> one of the things I didn't understand, Art. You know, you talked about um, intention to defraud uh, intent. Intent from a legal standpoint, of course, would include if you submitted a claim for a patient you never saw for a service you never did, that that's blatant intent. And I never did that. There was no allegations that I did that. But what I didn't understand, the definition of intent to defraud from a legal standpoint, it includes blind disregard, which means if you make similar mistakes and not having a system in in place to be able to identify and correct those errors, that is considered blind disregard and intent to defraud. So I didn't have systems to identify and correct those errors. We did make some. Uh, we did get monies we weren't entitled to. Of the $17,899, we also did our own investigation, uh, inquiry, and audit for that six-year period. We went back through those records, and there were, of course, treatment that we provided, should have billed for, and could have billed for. But And that was about $30,000. about not quite twice what they found that we got that we weren't entitled to. That made no difference. So, so, so theoretically, you were $13,000 that you were technically owed, but they it, still came and got you. They still came and got me, yeah. Um, you know, the, from the, the review of, of our submissions, and we were paid a lot of money during that time, then they did 
they sent letters to 15 of our patients and did a screening uh, in a classroom on a weekend. And that triggered the search and, search and seizure. And after the search and seizure, they had a lot invested. There was nothing that was going to stop that. They actually, they contacted Medicaid to ask them conduct uh, conduct audits. Audits. It was Durrell Dental, who is now Dentaquest, the administrator of Virginia Medicaid. And they did a first audit. And the patients that pulled, it was at random. Uh, there was no common thread between them. And it came back clean. And the government said, no, you don't understand. He's been charged with this, this, and this. We want you to do a more in-depth review. And they did a review of the 15 patients during that, that six-year period that we were paid the most money up from, from uh, highest reimbursed to the 15th highest. And they did an evaluation on that. And I, I share facts when I'm presenting uh, the conversation between Doral Dental, Dental Quest to the Virginia Medicaid they basically said, we don't see anything that he's done that we don't see in any other markets. We don't have a problem with Dr. Shelburne. And I thought that would have stopped it from the Medicaid audit point of view. But the government's response was, well, you just don't have the, the ability to go as deeply as we've done to determine he's committing health care fraud. And, and, and this is about $17,000. This is about $17,000. So, so, so they, they arrest you and then are, are you, I, I mean, I'm assuming that you were out on bail during this uh, trial or did they keep you in prison? What did they do? That's, a, that's another interesting story. Um, so I was arrested. I was transferred to uh, Bristol, Tennessee, uh, Virginia, where I spent the night in jail. Uh, that kept me in in solitary confinement, transported to the the courtroom, walked in. My attorney was on the left. I sat down next to him and he said, Doc, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And I said, what's the good news? He said, the good news is that I've agreed. We, we've come to an agreement with the prosecution on the terms of bail and you will be going home. And I said, well, that is good news. What's the bad news? He said, the bad news is for them to agree, you're going, going to have to surrender your license to practice. Oh. So my life evaporated, evaporated in that moment. But there were there were so many providential things that happened. Art, and this was one of those days. So the 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 judge comes in. We stand, sit. He looks at the prosecutor and asks him um, what I'm being charged with. And the prosecutor shared the um, the charges. And then it got to the point of bail, and he asked the prosecutor, "Have you come to an agreement in terms of bail?" And the prosecutor says, "Yes." And he said, well, what are those terms? And he said, well, Dr. Shelburne, we asked that he post this amount of money and we've asked that he, he surrender his license. So in almost every case, the ju judge would then look at me and my attorney and say, are there any objections? And we would have said no, because that was the bargain that, that they had set. He didn't do that. He looked at the prosecutor and asked, does the Board of Dentistry of Virginia still exist, sir? And the prosecutor goes, yes. And he, the judge asked the prosecutor, are, is the board aware of the situation? And the, the prosecutor said, yes, the prosecution had tried to encourage the board to act on my license and revoke if they hadn't. So the judge looked at the prosecutor and said, sir, do you are you asking me to supersede the power of another governmental agency who has a responsibility of determining whether or not individuals can practice appropriately in Virginia? You're asking me to do that. And the prosecutor looked at the judge and said, I, I guess. Duh. <laughs> and the judge said, until the board acts on this man's license, he can he can practice dentistry. But in this case, it went everywhere. I have a, a friend who practices in New Jersey. I was the story in the New York Times. <laughs> you made it to the big time. I, I made it to the big time. So I, I thought without 
doubt that my practice would be over. I, I was wrong. The, the best term I ever had financially was the year after I was indicted and the year before I was prosecuted. So you know how you'll, you'll diagnose pa- treatment for patients, either a bridge or a partial, and they would be in my chair and I'd go there again. They, you know, they delay it for whatever reason. And I, I, Miss Smith, you really need this crown. And they would be laying in the chair and they would go, yeah, I know I do. And I, w- I really want you to do it. And they would roll back to look at me and say, but I don't know if you're going to be here or not. So do it now. So that's a, so that's kind of a, uh, I'm, I shouldn't joke about this, but I mean, that that's one way to grow your practice is to say, you might be going to jail. Let's get it done now. My God. I, I say any, they say any publicity is good plus publicity. In this case, it was, I wouldn't recommend that you get it that way, but the practice actually grew and became even more successful after that, you know, take home to the listeners, have that relationship with the patients. They know who you are. They trust you. And the, anything that's coming from the outside can have little effect on um, what what happens from that. So nine-day trial, learned a lot in the process. The, I, there were 118 instances, Art, that were brought, um, and the jury had to find me guilty on one of those 118 instances. So they had 118 chances to find me guilty. And we prepared directly for those 118 allegations. What I didn't understand, the first probably third to almost half of the trial hinged around our lifestyle, the vehicles that we drove, the vacations that we went on. And as I shared, the jury never knows the amount. So in their mind, they were, they were expanding it. So this must have been a huge amount of money. And the, the motive that the government established that I had for committing the health care healthcare fraud was to fund my lavish lifestyle. How you do that with $17,000 over the course of six and a half years, I don't know, but that was that was my motive. And like I said, the first four days were establishing I was the rich dentist. And to be honest with you, we did very extensive care for our patients. And as a juror, from their point of view, they're taxpayers, they're paying money um, to fund the Medicare, Medicaid world. They're working. They may not even be able to afford to take their children to the dentist. There is this dentist providing Cadillac care, treating um, baby teeth. And why in the world would you treat a baby tooth? You know, it's they're going to lose it. Why in the world would you, you know, I had patients, we would present a treatment plan. It was a, a primary tooth that needed to be restored. And they would look at me and go, Dr. Shelburne, that's a baby tooth. Why would you even treat that? Go ahead and they're going to lose it anyway. Take it out. But I, if the tooth could be restored to be able to maintain the space for that, that child and give it something to chew with, I would restore it with stainless steel crown any day of the week. And, you know, the jurors are looking at that and go, he got paid this amount of money to be able to restore that. And I can't go. So why in the world would I feel that it's important to do that? He made money and fund his vacation to wherever. And, you know, I can't even take my kids to the dentist and they're using my taxpayer money to do that. So, you know, getting behind the curtain and thinking the way think they think it's a hard, hard way to defend. Uh, it's a it's a remarkable story. And, and again, Dr. Shelburne, it's not like you went into your career to start defrauding people and insurance companies. You went in as an honest uh, dental professional, like most of the 200,000 dentists in this country are. And um 
this is this is what happened. So you went to prison, mm-hmm. and um, I mean, we could spend. I would love to spend two hours hearing every nook and cranny of the story. Unfortunately, I don't have the time. But um, right. she went to prison, and then um, that gave you an opportunity to kind of start thinking about the next chapter of your life. You you were sentenced for it was it was two years, right? Twenty four months. Yes. Right. And you served nineteen of those months. You you must have you got out on good behavior or time served or yeah. In the in the federal prison system, the best amount of reduction you can get for good behavior is fifteen percent. So nineteen months in federal prison, two months in a halfway house, and then was released to uh, um, three years probation after that. I, to be honest with you, I'm here today, and I've been able to be given a pr- platform because people have supported me. Most people, if you've been in dentistry for any length of time at all, you know Linda Miles. Oh, Linda's a dear friend. I love Linda. One of the Linda. finest people in the dental profession. Just, just at, She's been on our podcast. She's, I, I love Linda. Yeah. So if you know Linda, you know she's all about making sure she takes care of people. Was yes. a friend of hers as well. She's a Virginian. I'm a Virginian. Yes. Um, the month before I was to submit myself to the federal prison camp for incarceration, she called me and she said, these are her words, Roy, you're going to be a speaker. I said, said, Linda, thank you for that, but that's not going to happen. You understand where I'm going and what I've been through. She goes, "I, I absolutely do. But you have a future, you have a story that needs to be told. So um, I didn't know that she had an organization called the Speaking Consulting Network yes. that teaches people who would like to be speakers, writers, and consultants in the dental world how to do it. And she arranged for me to attend the next meeting after I was released from the custody of federal prisons. And it actually occurred the day after I was released. Her meeting was in Anaheim, California. She arranged for me to fly to Anaheim to that meeting the day after I was released from custody and learned how to be able to manage that business, how to be able to move forward, especially when you have a platform that you need to share. And literally the day after I was released, she and that organization gave my life back to me. So Linda has retired. She sold the business to Lois Banta now, but it still is existing and still vibrant. So if you have any listeners who might be interested in a speaking, writing, and consulting career in dentistry, that's the meeting that you need to go to to be able to learn how to do that. Now, the, and, and Lois is also one of the iconic people in dentistry. So, why, so what you're saying is while you were in prison, you didn't have any inkling of that, you know, what's the next step in my life? I mean, you... Uh, did you actually you did you end up losing your dental license in the state of Virginia? I did. Um, in Virginia, the minimum pat- period of revocation is three years. So the entire board has to meet and act on a dentist license to revoke it. They can suspend, but they can't revoke. And I knew as a result of the conviction, I would be looking at a revocation. So doing the math. That board meeting where they all come together to act on my license wouldn't occur until after I was incarcerated and I had to be present for them to act on it. So it would have meant that after I was released from prison, they would have acted on my license and revoked it. But the three year revocation period would start then. So did the calculation. I voluntarily surrendered it for revocation prior to going in prison, which started the clock ticking prior to the two years incarceration. I was able to 
reapplied. The three-year period was July the 11th of 2011. Um, had done about 600 hours of CE in the three years my license was revoked. I, after being released, I went to Virginia Commonwealth University, Virginia's dental school, and I rotated through the different departments and they could observe my ability to be able to provide appropriate care. They provide a letter, letter of support to the Board of Dentistry. For the dentist on the podcast, I took my boards over again. That was kind of fun the, the second time, passed them. <laughs> um, that, that, that's impressive. There's no way. How many years had you been out of dental school? school? Uh, when, I, when I retook it, 31. Yeah, there's no way in in you know what that I could pass the CPA exam again. Uh, so I <laughs> you're probably cutting yourself short, Art. You could probably do that. Uh, you'd um, be surprised. Ultimately, I I I, I did that. Passed them. Gave uh, gave the board all that information. Uh, they met on December first of two thousand eleven. Um, the Commonwealth attorney vehemently opposed the reinstatement of my license. Was was passionate in her argument that I should never be given my license back. Was asked to leave the that that room where they deliberated. I was out of the room for about an hour and 45 minutes. They called me back in, the board chairman stood. He said, Dr. Shelburne, we had a hard time with this. We, we talked for a while, we argued for a while, and we actually yelled a little bit, but we have come to a consensus. We have agreed to give your license back to practice dentistry. Wow. I was shocked. I, you know, most things are online. I'd gone back to find out if anybody who had had their license revoked would had ever been given it back. So I didn't have a whole lot of hope that I would, but I thought if I, if I don't at least try, I'll never, I'll never be satisfied. I'll never let it go. So I, I was, I was shocked. And coincidentally, the American Dental Association, my, I surrendered my license for revocation. I was at the federal prison camp in Manchester, Kentucky, got my renewal letter from, from the Virginia Dental Association with my dues. And Terry Dickinson, dear friend of mine, was the director of the Virginia Dental Association at that time. And I, I wrote a letter back. I said, Terry, I, I'm sorry, I won't be able to renew. You know where I am. He actually um, wrote a letter of support to the judge asking the judge to be lenient in the sentencing. Um, so I wrote the letter back and I got a, a, the nicest letter back from Terry. He said, Doc, if and until you can you can support yourself and be able to keep your license active. We will consider this a hardship case in your life or your membership in the Southwest Virginia Dental Association, the Virginia Dental Association and the ADA will remain intact. Thank you. An absolute remarkable story. So Dr. Shelburne, I want to, I want to, um, I want to turn for a second and I want to use the rest of this time to help our listeners, because obviously you learned a lot of very, very difficult lessons uh, through what happened to you, it was, you know, out of three and a half million dollars to be, uh, you know, prosecuted and harassed the way you were over uh, $17,000 of which most of which was probably wasn't even an issue. Um, you know, it, it just shows you the power of the federal government. And it shows you folks, you know, if you're not reporting income, the IRS has the same power that the federal folks have that took down Dr. Shelburne. Um, so let, let's get into now what you've been doing the last, you know, 10 years or so, which is helping dentists all over the country and probably all over the world. Let, let's start talking about medic. One of the issues that they came after you for was medical necessity in the clinical records, right? 
And right. that, that's a big part of what you talk about. So talk about that. Talk about what, because, you know, one of your biggest mistakes that you you talk about on your website and in your lectures, because I've, I've heard your lecture before, is that, you know, you, you didn't pay as much attention as maybe you should have. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you that there's thousands of dentists listening to this podcast right now, nodding their heads and going, yeah, that's. That's me. I don't. I don't pay attention as much as I should. I, I trust Susie at the front desk to make sure that insurance is billed right and that we document and that the, the hygienist and the blah 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 blah. So, talk about the medical necessity part of what got you in trouble and what people should be doing. And I also want to give out your information here shortly as far as how you can help people. But but let's start with the medical necessity part. Sure. Um, All right. Thanks for the question. If it's not in your clinical record, you didn't see it, you didn't say it, it wasn't done, it didn't need to be done, it does not exist from a legal perspective. So that clinical record could testify for you very loudly and strongly and support the medical necessity for the treatment that you have provided. Anything that you provide treatment for needs to establish, be established in the clinical record, what the diagnosis is, and if you're on the medical side, all reimbursement is generated from the diagnosis. We're kind of backwards in dentistry. It's the treatment we provide that is reimbursed. And the diagnosis, of course, should, in a perfect world, happen prior to, but it doesn't. For example, justification for scaling and root planing, a complete periodontal diagnosis has three variables to be uh, as thorough to substantiate that treatment. And those variables are, it's either mild, moderate, severe, it's either generalized or localized, or it's chronic or acute periodontal disease and or inflammation, gingivitis. So a complete periodontal diagnosis would be severe, generalized, chronic periodontal disease. That's a diagnosis. I almost never see that in a clinical record. I see evidence that there is periodontal disease with either the, the radiographs and or the periodontal probing, but I almost never see a diagnosis. How can you treat something that you have not diagnosed and recorded prior to? You you can treat it, but what's the substantiation, the need for? So for the scaling and root planing or periodontal treatment, you need to have bleeding on probing. You have to have bone loss 10% or greater and or probing depths of five, four, five or greater, depending on what the plan substantiates. That, That supports the fact and helps to drive that diagnosis of the periodontal disease. And if you'll look at the coding, it is changing. The code maintenance committee actually will meet day after tomorrow. I'm flying to Chicago, sit that through that meeting to listen to the submissions, re- requests for coding changes, to understand the motivation behind it and to know what the new codes are gonna be in 2023. But if you're looking at the 4346, that code actually describes and contains in its descriptor a diagnosis. It is scaling in the presence of generalized, which is 30% of the mouth or greater, moderate to severe inflammation. So to treat that with a 4346 scaling, that clinical record should establish the fact that the inflammation is chronic and either moderate or severe. So that helps better to understand that there is a diagnosis that is uh, necessary prior to providing the treatment. And to be very specific, there was an issue with a simple restorative procedure. I think it was a OF 
uh, lesion on tooth number 19. And a radiograph was taken, but it was the lesion was not evident on a radiograph. So the argument was by the, the, the government was I treated a tooth that the radiograph did not show evidence. And they had an expert witness, a dentist, who said, in their opinion, if the lesion didn't show up on a radiograph, it would not warrant treatment. And usually when I say that, we'll get a groan from the, the, the people that are there because we in dentistry understand that not everything is evident on a radiograph, but do our patients understand that if we're going to treat something, even though we've taken a radiograph, that it may not show up on the radiograph. They know you should, it's, it's black and white. It should show up on a radiograph you treat it, or if it doesn't, you shouldn't. So the point was, I treated a tooth that from the radiographic evidence would not indicate that the tooth needed to be treated. So supportive information, documentation for that would be a notation from the doctor and or a photograph. So anytime something happens during the course of treatment that surprises you, doctor, that is that should trigger the bell in your head that go, I didn't see that. I'm surprised. And by the way, therefore, anybody else who follows me, who might audit me or look at what I've provided, they're probably going to be surprised too. So this is time for me to stand up, step back, and have my assistant take a photo of what's going on because a picture sometimes is worth a thousand words. And if you're surprised and you see something that does surprise you, that's a way to document that in a way that it would help substantiate what you did to take that well, you treated a tooth that didn't need to be treated because I didn't see anything in your clinical record that would suggest it needs to be treated. It would take that off the table. So there, there are all kinds of issues that I was unaware of. You know, for, for me, I, I'm the dentist. I have an education. Don't you trust me? The answer to that is no, I do not. <laughs> so, so in this particular situation, um, you didn't see it on the radiograph, right? Correct. So the proper thing to do, which apparently maybe you didn't do, is to have the assistant take a, an intraoral photo or, or some sort of a additional documentation so that three years later, when you're in a court of law like you were, you right. could say, this is why I recommended this treatment on this tooth. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? It's very straightforward. You know, we don't live in a world where your clinical decision based on what you see that nobody else can see, that will not help you. That will not support you because it's not something that is empirical. Somebody can look at and go, I, I, I see what you saw. If you don't take a photograph, they didn't see what you saw. So that would be considered the standard of care, I would think. It would and, be as far as documentation and, goes. Right. So, uh, so you've been in hundreds, maybe a couple thousand. I don't know how many dental offices you've been to consult with people and dentists you're talking to every day. Um, on a scale of one to 10, how is the dental profession doing in medical necessity documentation? Um, probably 10% of them do a, a, what I would consider an excellent job. Ooh, and, that's scary. And, and in most instances, that 10%, the reason why they do is they probably have had an issue with a carrier, either an audit or something else that has made them aware of what's going on. And Art, I think it's important to share the world today of audits. 
Um, audits, they say they occur randomly. They don't. All insurance companies actually share their submissions data with a company that call, it's called P&O Strategies. They put together this bell curve of averages. Dr. Average is in the middle of that bell curve and more than likely audits don't occur with them. But the further you go out to the right standard deviations, one, two, or three, the more different you are than other practices and the more likely you're gonna be audited. And what happens in an audit, for example, Here's a, here's a real case. A doctor was going to do a crown on an upper left molar, sent a PA in to substantiate the need for that um, crown on the molar. The x-ray that they sent in did not meet standard of care. It was not a good x-ray. And the individual who looked at that, the doctor who looked at that, the consultant, looked at the x-ray and thought, hmm, if they think this is diagnostic, if I go back through and do a little bit of audit of the radiographs, I wonder what I'm going to find. Because a non-diagnostic radiograph is a worthless service. Wonder if, number one, if they're charging for them, and number two, how many do they do? So this dentist was audited. They pulled charts for 20 patients, reviewed the radiographs for those 20, found out that 22% of the radiographs they billed for were non-diagnostic. They used that 22%. They looked back six years, and they multiplied the 22% by every x-ray they paid to that doctor over the that six-year period, and the number this doctor had to pay back to the insurance company was almost six figures. It was $78,000. But, but I mean, how, how, how scary is that? Now, let me throw something out, and then I want, I want you to talk a little bit about what you do to help the dental provider. I mean, and, and what you've done, I mean, you've probably saved hundreds, if not thousands of dentists from going through potentially what you go through. But so let's say we have a dentist who is doing things, of course, that's none of my listeners, right, folks? You all do everything by the book, Perfect. the way Dr. Shelburne teaches it now, right? But, but you know, you have a doctor who just, you know, I mean, uh, burns the candle at both ends and maybe cuts corners and, well, we can do this and, and they don't document. So you ended up getting <laughs> the knock on or the, the door knocked down. Because somebody who you never found out who it was turns you in, right? Correct. Now, now, if you doctors are doing things in your practice, whether it's financially or clinically, that you shouldn't be doing, your dental team knows it. Isn't that right, doctor? Yes. And the scary part is the individual who makes the complaint can get up to a third of what is recouped. So are there financial gains for those people who do blow the whistle? So if you have that disgruntled employee and you're doing things that are funky, do they have uh, a, a lot of potentially dangerous information that they can share and actually gain from? Not only their satisfaction, but financially, scary. Wow. Take a second, Dr. Shelburne. Again, I wish I had more time to, to talk to you today, but I want you to talk about you not only are a nationally recognized speaker, lecturer, you go to dental meetings all over the country. You've been on one or two podcasts, I suspect. <laughs> and um, But what do you, you also consult with dentists in their offices to help them with these issues. We're going to talk a little bit about billing codes before we finish up here. Talk about what you do, how you can help someone, and how people can get a hold of you. Oh, thanks. Um, if you Google me, I have a website, or if you, my website is just my name, Roy Shelburne. Um, Dot com. Um, I help offices, I, I audit uh, to be able to give them not only areas that are 
put them in danger, but I almost always find things that they are doing and they're leaving on the table that should be reimbursed for. So it goes both ways. Um, get into I, that in a second. Yeah, I want them to get every single penny that they are entitled to legitimately and I underline and stress legitimately. Um, there are all kinds of things that you can implement in your office that will increase, but I want to keep you out of harm's way. One of the things I do is help them adopt a seven-step compliance program, which takes the blind disregard off the table. They'll, they'll do audit, audits on their own occasionally to make sure that they're doing it correctly, not leaving anything off on the table, but also getting everything that they're entitled to. So help them implement that, Make uh, help them with their uh, documentation templates as far as that goes to make sure that they they capture everything that they need to train the team to be able to help support the doctor in that way I, i'm proponent of having everything delegated to the individual who um will allow the doctor provide their highest best use which is at the chair either educating the patient and or providing care not doing the documentation so so how can folks get a hold of you and how do you work with folks and stuff sure um as far as I can either help them with the audits and the implementation, the consulting piece, I can do as much or as little as they care for me to. Um, so they can either email me, which is my name again, Roy Shelburne at gmail.com. And, and, and uh, folks, that's S-H-E-L-B-U-R-N-E. Correct. And I, I, I do kind of a, an assessment prior to make recommendations in terms where I, I I want to be able to give them the biggest bang for the buck. So number one, highest risk. Number two, which will increase the reimbursement and keep them off the radar with those companies who kind of take a look at what we do and why we're doing it. And, and, and doctors, I want to make a comment because I've done something very, very, very difficult for me in my podcast. I've stayed quiet most of the time because <laughs> this gentleman has an amazing story to tell and I wanted him to tell it without uh, without any commercial interruptions. But I want to again stress, and I'm actually going to be recording a podcast, a very interesting one uh, shortly, which we're going to talk about leadership and ethics. But everything that you do to your employees needs to bleed of, we are doing everything by the book. It is not about the money. It is about what is best for the patient. And part of that is your documentation, because obviously Dr. Shelburne um, was victimized by, uh, you know, maybe him not watching it as much as he should. He learned a lesson. He, you know, he, he paid the price, but, but he is paying it back big time. So if you are not thinking that maybe, you know, you're, you're not doing things right, you might want to give him a call, but it, it, but folks, you must act with honesty, integrity, and transparency in your practice, or else you could have an employee who's got the goods on you. Um, and, and you just don't want to do that. So I want to get a little bit, Dr. Shelburne, into um, you know, billing codes. You said that that lots of dentists leave money on the table. So, and we we had a uh, we've had a couple of uh, podcasts on this subject, but what are the biggest mistakes that you see that dentists make in using like the wrong billing codes? Maybe give some examples and maybe some some gems here. Sure. Um, well, for example, you're, you're obligated to use the code that best describes the service that you're providing. I see people play a little bit with the coding. Okay, this doesn't get paid, but this is kind of like what we're doing. But we're, So we're, let's use that code. No. Use the code that best describes the service you provide. And period. Well, for example, if you're, if you're doing a crown and 
the insurance company is going to, um, you, you did a porcelain fuse to base metal crown, but you bill for an all porcelain crown. Ultimately, did you provide a crown? Yes, but all crown codes are not alike. They actually describe different type of uh, materials that we use to provide that crown. So the reimbursement for a porcelain fuse to base metal crown is less than the porcelain crown. So if you bill for the porcelain crown, you may have gotten money that you aren't entitled to, and that would be considered a fraudulent submission. You need to make sure that when you're choosing your codes, you choose the code that best describes the service that provide you provided the patient. And a, an example of codes that patients or that offices may not be aware of, uh, as far as during the profi, if you are also putting the denture in an ultrasonic, there's a code that you can build in a built in addition to for cleaning the prosthesis as well as profi of the patient's mouth. A lot of a lot of offices I know don't know about that code. Another one is an evaluation code, the 180. It is um, evaluation in, with a patient. It's a comprehensive periodontal evaluation. And some people think, well, that's, that's only a code that periodontists can use. No, that code can be used to describe any situation where a patient has periodontal disease or is at higher risk of periodontal disease. And the only stipulation over and above the 150 and the 120 with the 180 is that it mandates a periodontal evaluation and charting. So if you're doing that anyway, ask for the D180. If you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. It's going to be reimbursed at a higher rate generally than the 120. So like I said, if you don't ask for it, you don't get it. And some insurance companies will not recognize it. If that's the case, ask for the alternate benefit of the 120. So it's a matter of using the correct coding in a way that is considered acceptable and then using other techniques to be able to make sure that you don't drop that, you don't leave it on the table. So so I, I have a, a situation came up interesting I want to get your take on. So um, dentist is contracted with a an insurance company, a PPO, and the PPO allows for a, let's just say a porcelain fused to metal crown, mm -hmm. and the fee is $800. Right. Okay. So the doctor looks and says, no, I don't think that's the best restoration. I want to do a cubic zirconium crown, or I want to do a gold crown or something that is more expensive. And the doctor then goes to the patient and says, you're going to sign a consent to allow me to charge you the higher fee, and we're only going to bill the insurance what they pay for. Is that okay? The answer is maybe. <laughs> Isn't it always? <laughs> no, it is, is, it is not always. It depends on the plan. So when you're the great question, Art, I get this all the time, and this is, is this something that I, I teach? Absolutely so. Number one, you need to contact the plan to find out what their position is on what's called optional services. That's what you've described, optional service. They're upgrading the service to the patient. Patient needs to be made aware. If the insurance company does recognize it, patient needs to be aware. They sign a document that says, understand I'm getting updated or upgraded in, um, uh, treatment. I do agree to paying the difference. That needs to be attached to the claim to the insurance company so they're made aware of the discount and then deal with um, the upgrade and can you collect from the patient? Yes, it's not 100% of the time. It also depends on the services that you're providing. Some services, they will let you upgrade. Other services, they will not. So it's a moving target. 
one insurance company may allow it. Another company may not at all. Some will will restrict it. So it's kind of all over the board. You need to, ignorance is no excuse here as well. You need to understand your limitations and be able to abide by those limitations. In your example, can you? Maybe. So if the insur- so you could go and do all of this and then the patient agrees, yes, I'll pay the $1,500 and the insurance company pays half of the 800 and the patient basically pays 1100 But that could still not be, le- I don't know, you, I'm not a lawyer, but legal or allowed yeah. because if the insurance company says no, you cannot upgrade. I mean, but then isn't the insurance company dictating treatment? Um, they are not dictating treatment. They're dictating what they're going to pay for. So okay. they, they do not say, doctor, you can't do that. They say, doctor, if you do that, I'm not going to allow you to do this or pay for it. Whatever the limitation so, is. On so could they, could they say, if you're going to do the $1,500 crown, we're not going to approve anything for that particular tooth. They could possibly, if it's a replacement. Right. Yes. Okay. So within the limitation period, they could say, no, we're not going to pay for it. And by the way, you can't bill the patient. But it's all about documentation and um, exactly. So, you know, what, so let's talk about the people listening to this podcast. And I have thousands of listeners and they're listening. They're going, oh, crap. <laughs> I've been in practice for 30 years and I, I don't document this way. I, I don't. And, and, and my, my, my assistants don't document in the charts and my, uh, you know, my, my front office does a, what if we've been doing stuff long, wrong forever? I mean, is it too late? Uh, what What do we do if they if they listen to this and say, "Oh my goodness, I, I maybe I really need to take a look at this"? How does that work? Yeah, it's it's never too late. You know, um, woulda, coulda, shoulda. I, I I wouldn't go back and disclose anything, but I would I would develop a journal and, like I said, the audit plan that I, I suggested. You would document just as if. It were a meeting of the Rotary Club or whatever it is. On X on date, we initiated an audit program in our practice. This is what we saw. This is what we have now implemented to make sure moving forward that doesn't occur anymore. And um, if there's a policy change, for example, um, if you do implement the optional service, you need to outline that, have everybody in the office read and understand that and sign it so they know um, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And just adhere to anything. Anytime you make a change or a notification, there again, it's important to document in a way that if they, if you do get audited, the company comes in and goes, notices you've done something funky, and they may initiate an action. And they may w- want to know, what have you done in lieu of what we found to be able to do that? And if you have that history where you implemented that program, you could say, yes, we did. We did notice that we did this incorrectly, but this is what we we have implemented moving forward. So in that scenario, you might be liable to reimburse money going past, but they're not going to take action against you now because you did what was reasonable to correct and to become more compliant moving forward. The blind disregard is basically taken off the table. They, they don't teach this in dental schools, and oh. I'm assuming there's a lot of this stuff that's going on. And at the end of the day, doctor, again, I am a broken record. It is about acting with honesty, integrity, and what's in the best interest of your patient and document, doc. I mean, it's the same thing in my world. You know, I tell, I've taught young accountants for 38 years 
that I need to be able to read your work papers. And three years from now, if I'm sitting in front of the IRS, a government agency, just like the one that came after you, I need to be able to say, this is where I came up with my numbers and this is how we did it. And there's black, there's white, and there's gray. And it's probably the same in, 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 in the world of dentistry, you know, um, white, we do all day long, black. We don't even talk about being totally illegal and gray. You know, we have to talk about it and think about it. And is it in the best interest of the patient? Is that a good way to look at it? No, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, there are some areas of gray, but it's not gray because it hasn't been established. It's gray because we in dentistry are subjective. So if I gave the same clinical records for one patient to five different dentists, how many different and distinct treatment plans would be provided? Five. Five. <laughs> oh, well, probably seven or eight because yeah, like, if exactly. you decide on one, you do two or three. Right. So if you substantiate and document appropriately and when a reasonable human being, although they would not have done it that way themselves, they, they understand from a dental standpoint, it may be a treatment option. You know, they're philosophy is to do it this way, but not that way. Um, even it, if it is shades of gray, there are ways to document it in a way where a reasonable mind would go, I may not agree, but it makes sense to me that they did it this way. And I know some other people that do. Dr. Shelburne, we're pretty much at the end of, of the time I have. Anything else you want to share with our audience about what you've seen, what you do, what they should know? We've talked about coding. We've talked about medical necessity. What, what, what else? Anything else? As you said, be your your goal should be to number one, provide the best care for your patients. Number two, to educate your team so that they understand what you are trying to accomplish in your practice and lead in a way that is congruent with what you say you are. Because team members are like children. They can look at you and they 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 know what's going on behind. And if you want to have team members that will stay, will support you, will help you move forward, make them a part of the practice, give them a voice and listen to them. And when those patients, doctors, are asking, when you walk out of the room, are asking the hygienist, are asking the assistant, are asking the person at the front desk, do I really need three crowns? You need those people to basically say, Mrs. Smith, if Dr. Shelburne diagnosed that procedure, then you need it because he does not diagnose anything that is unnecessary and that is not going to help you with your total health. If they're saying anything less than that, folks, not good. So, Dr. Roy Shelburne, you are a, a gift to the dental profession. Um, you... Uh, you paid the ultimate price in this life. You went to prison for something that, you know, was uh, you thought you were doing right, but you weren't. And, and, and what you're doing is you're paying it back to your profession. So your legacy, my friend Gary Tack has taught me about legacy. So your legacy is helping thousands of dentists, hopefully to avoid in any way, shape or form, what happened to you. Would that be accurate? Yes. Thank you so right. much, Art. I appreciate that. And yeah. and last last thing, one more time, give out your contact information. If anybody, if you guys are thinking you need some help or some consultation, uh, I'm assuming Dr. Shelburne also, your lecture schedule is on your website so uh, it, people can find out if you're going to be in their town. Uh, if Dr. Shelburne is in your town and he's speaking uh, or he's on a webinar, uh, 
listen to what he says because he's going to do a much deeper dive than we were able to do on this podcast today. But how do they get a hold of you? Uh, RoyShelburne.com. That's just my name is my website. Uh, as far as email, RoyShelburne at gmail.com. And that's S-H-E-L-B-U-R-N-E. Dr. Shelburne, please hang uh, hang with me as I take my podcast out. And um, anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this is so important. I mean, you 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 know you, you want to make sure that you sleep at night and that you're doing everything right and what's best for your patients. And uh, we're, we're very fortunate in our dental world here in the United States to have people like Dr. Shelburne who can help you learn through his mistakes uh, and 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 make sure that it doesn't happen to you. Uh, again, make sure, folks, that you go to our partner, Decisions in Dentistry magazine, www.decisionsindentistry.com. Wonderful clinical content, uh, the best articles, great website, great magazine content, a who's who uh, of an advisory board clinically from all over the world. Um, go onto their website and and um, you know read their stuff. Uh, also, um, if you're not working with a dental-specific CPA, Give us a call. Give a member of the Academy of Dental CPAs a call, uh, www.adcpa.org. And again, my contact information is the phone number 657-279-3243. And my email is awiederman, W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N, at idbailey.com. Also want to let you know that I will be speaking. Uh, I will be doing a day of financial planning on the 28th of July at the uh, National Academy of General Dentistry meeting. I've been invited to speak there uh, in Orlando, Florida. Um, So I will bring a lot of sunscreen. Um, I actually actually checked out to see if I could play Bay Hill where they just played the Arnold Palmer Invitational. And, And the guy says to me, he says, well, you know. He says, we get thunder and lightning most every day, So, um, and it's going to be really hot and muggy, so the, the, the green fees are low, so I don't know if I'm bringing my clubs. I'd love to play that course. Uh, but anyway, I will be at the National Academy of General Dentistry meeting in Orlando uh, on the 28th. If you are there, please come up into my lecture and say hi. I always love seeing my podcast uh, listeners uh, live now that we're hopefully doing live meetings. So, Dr. Roy Shelburne, thank you so much for for your time and your um, what you're doing for the dental profession. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation, Art, and giving me a platform. I appreciate it very much. Wonderful. Well, folks, that is it for this uh, edition of the Art of Dental Finance and Management with Art Wiederman. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up this year. Um, please continue to listen. Please tell your friends. Please write reviews. Um, uh, you can download the podcast on uh, Apple and all the different platforms. You can download podcasts. If you, um, basically subscribe, you'll get every podcast. We, we publish twice a month and you'll be able to get the podcast, uh, when it comes out, uh, during the week and we publish on Wednesdays. Thank you again. Thank you for the honor and time of your privilege and for the art of dental finance and management. This is Art Wiederman, CPA saying so long until next time. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Art of Dental Finance and Management Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. The Art of Dental Finance and Management Podcast is produced by Ide Bailey in partnership with Art Biederman, CPA, Decisions in Dentistry Magazine, and the Academy of Dental CPAs. For audience questions and feedback, email Art Wiederman, awiederman at idebailey.com. That's A-W-I-E-D-E-R-M-A-N at E-I-D-E-B-A-I-L-L-Y.com. Or you may call Art at 657-279-3243. Oh, 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 oh